0: Law Focus Podcast, Podcast. bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Welcome to Law Focus with a staunch focus on the law. We are at the intersection of delivering justice through legal rights. My name is Basil Shirinda, your voice of law for the evening. It's Human Rights Day on Wednesday, 21st of March, 2018. And this evening on Law Focus, we are commemorating Human Rights Day by looking at the human rights violations that underpinned the listeriosis outbreak last month In February, Listeriosis is believed to be the largest outbreak of the Listeria bacteria. It has left more than 180 people dead across South Africa. With that in mind, it is important to know that Human Rights Day is linked to the 21st of March 1960 and the Sharpeville Massacre. It was indeed a sad day for South Africans. On this day, The Pan-Africanist Congress proposed an anti pass campaign to begin on March 21, 1960 to fight for particularly civil and political rights, which are commonly referred to as first-generation rights. But do not forget that they also had social, economic and cultural rights in mind. At the time, the immediate rights were uh, equality, freedom of expression, freedom of movement and their political rights to to democracy, you know. These black people gathered at Sharpeville without their dompas, right? And they knew that this was a contravention of the law. They did what people normally refer to as civil disobedience. That is a direct um, violation of the law for a just cause. Or in the words of Thomas Aquinas, civil disobedience is a direct violation of unjust laws, which are not law law at all. The order was given to disperse that the people must move away, and they chose not to. So the police opened fire with sharp point ammunition on the crowd of men, women, and children. And on that day, 69 people died. And 180 were wounded when police fired on this peaceful crowd that had gathered only to protest, which is their civil right, right? And they were just protesting against these past laws, and all the government had to do was just listen to them um, and understand why, but they chose not to. And they infringed their right to protest, their right to life, and their right to participate uh, in, this de- in, in a democratic state. But that was not a democratic state. That was a bad date. And that was the reason why it was so easy for them to commit these Sharpeville massacres because they had no context of civil rights. Or at least these civil rights were not afforded to black people. Well, amongst other events, this influenced the adoption of the Bill of Rights as found in the constitution today. The legacy of the hard work of our forebearers of the fight for freedom should be appreciated. So tomorrow on Human Rights Day, South Africans are asked to reflect on their rights and how to protect themselves against violations thereof. Do you stay tuned for the upcoming discussion? Before we get into that, we start the show with the hottest legal stories of the week. Here are the legal hotspots. Rounding up all the top stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. Welcome to our legal hotspots for the week. Uh, We have three stories on the line. Um, The first story is about uh, a five-year-old child who was found dead in a pit latrine toilet in Luna Primary School. Uh, The second story is about life is a dimeni. Former Deputy Chief Justice Dikang Musaneg has made rulings in that arbitration hearing that officials have actually contravened the Constitution or have behaved unconstitutionally. Uh, the third story is, is based on the preservation order that which has been granted by the South Gauteng High Court in Johannesburg uh, that a private jet that is owned by the Guptas should remain in, at the Lenseria airport amidst corruption. I mean, law focus listener, it is important to remember that in 2014, um, a young boy called Michael Komape passed on at the Limpopo. Primary school because he was found in a pit latrine toilet. He never returned to class. The principals never asked questions. The school never did anything. No one noticed until, until, until a mother had to probe and find out what happened to her child. Now it will also be remembered that in that particular case, section 27 took the matter to 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 the, all the way to the Constitutional Court for that matter uh, to be able to claim damages worth of two million rands for loss of life and 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 also future life damages. Now. This year, we are dealing with a five-year-old child in the Eastern Cape grade R uh, pupil called Lumkam who failed to return to class uh, after going to the toilet, right? This learner at the Luna Primary School was reported missing at the school on Monday and a search involving police and in the community was conducted to find her. Unfortunately, her lifeless body was found the next day at the school's pit latrine toilet. So this child has fallen into the toilet and drowned now the equal education lord clinic has has worked hard to actually bring it to the attention of of uh, uh, the minister of basic education and and jimut that she needs to fully fix the flaws in the department's rules for school infrastructure because the the government the government is not doing anything with with the quality of toilets and i think that, that that is the issue here that to what extent should the government provide for quality toilets to 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 these students or to these schools especially in the rural areas is it within reasonable means because if you look at um, at at our structure of socioeconomic economic rights in the country you realize that the government has to has to perform these functions within reasonable means and it is provided in section 28 it is provided in section 26 it is provided in section 25 it is provided in section 28 I mean 29 which is the education clause it is provided across the board of socioeconomic economic rights that the government should provide these rights within reasonable or available resources as a constitution state which means that the jurisdiction moves all the all the way from the from the constitutional court into the hands of of the of legislature and the executive particularly the executive because they're the ones who implement uh, these policies on socioeconomic economic rights so that means that the that that now the, gov- the government is now dealing with an issue of minimum core, if you go back to the Hrudebom case, that the, that all of these socio-economic rights have to be provided to the minimum core. That means the very basic of these socio-economic rights should reach the very poor of the poorest. Because these rights, at the end of the day, are provided for the very marginalized in society. Right? So when you're dealing with the, with a case like this, you're dealing with an issue of is government, uh, is, is government provided a duty or is, is government obligated to provide these toilets at a quality level and i would answer that question readily yes uh, because you need to provide you need to you need to protect the dignity of these of these kids their freedom and security of the person which also includes their physical in, uh, integrity you need to bring them to a state of, of 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 importance right give them a sense of dignity and a sense of existence and if you're going to give them toilets that place them at danger you're also violating their right to life. Um, so the South African Human Rights Commission has blamed education officials for the deaths of three pupils at the Northwest School for the, uh, for the Deaf in August. So you have another case on top of another case on top of another case. Why? Because these regulations do not provide enough. So the wording of the norms and standards allows the department a get out of free, uh, free jail, free card says Equal Education Law Center, Deputy Director Daniel Lender. He says that Regulation 45A says the Department of Basic Education is only responsible for fixing schools to the extent that other parts of the state, such as Public Works, municipalities, or ESCOM cooperate and make resources available. It goes back to my argument about does government have to provide for these obligations, for these obligations within reasonable resources, and will that take us back to why we have so many protests in the country? Because all of these socioeconomic rights are not provided to people purely because government keeps on saying they don't have resources moving to our next uh, story life is a domain i mean i mean dikangmusenega is battling very hard with officials who have disregarded the lives of 144 people they've acted negligently they violated the constitution they violated their own rules they didn't provide for a good policy that which would see to it that the transitional measures this is a failure in project management that has led to deaths of people. So there are too many, too many failures. There's a failure of skill, which is project management itself. There's a failure of, of adhering to, to basic uh, constitutional rights. He has found that, um, I mean, he has made a ruling that they've they've contravened the constitution they've acted unconstitutional to the extent that uh, they've they've infringed on section 12 which is freedom of security and the person they've infringed on the dignity of the people they've also infringed on 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 their lives uh by acting negligently so luckily for now it's not a criminal issue it's still it's still a delict issue so we we are able to move to compensation i mean far more importantly Dikang uh, museneke has, de- has also declared um, uh, unconstitutional the cost savings reason that which has been provided by Mathangu and Silebanu um, he says that this, this, this is a very terrible reason especially in the manner in which it was carried out right so the failure was in not taking reasonable steps to see to it that that lives of people are preserved right it's also about saving money while you, while you are being careful about people's lives. But what is far more paramount is people's lives. So in budgeting in that regard, the, the government should have been cognizant of that fact, that yes, we are trying to save costs, but people's lives are going to be on the line. So let's find a good transitional project management plan that will slowly and gradually lead us into into what we want to achieve, which was was commendable. There is a need to save costs in the country so that we can be able to, to redistribute resources, but not in this manner, I argue. So the Houghton government has set aside 28 million rands for life-is-a-dimeni compensation, Um, and this 28 million rand will be spread across the board. Both solidarity representing four families and Section 27 representing more than 60 families have asked for constitutional damages on the basis that patients' constitutional rights were violated. So they're asking for more. So Senecque has found that uh, have found unconstitutionality irrational decision making now that is the rule of law to end the life is a demonic contract so that means that um in terms of judicial review the contract was ended in a, a in an irregular manner and therefore is subject to judicial review under under Paja or under the rule of law and and constitutional um rule of law he describes the treatment of patients as torture and spoke about NGOs as places where death and torture ensued life as a demon was a a very huge tragedy on so many levels and there is nothing that could rationalize it there's no manner in which we can make an argument that that maybe or just maybe or somehow no it was wrong and it ends there moving on to our third story uh, the court has, uh, I mean, so the South Gauteng High Court has given a preservation order of well, well, of most of, of the assets of 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 Gupta linked, of of all the assets that are Gupta linked, has been linked with state capture in the country. So this Bombardier Global Six Thousand aircraft, uh, which uh, the the Gupta family was leasing. Is going to be handed over to the NPA, which is the National Prosecuting Authority, and it will be stored at the Lanseria Airport in Johannesburg, up until coru- th- these corruption charges have been fully investigated and the matter has been brought before court and either they've been acquitted or found guilty. Uh, it needs to also be noted that South Africa is also is also caught in a limbo with regards to the citizenship of the of of the Gupta's. Now, one would strongly argue, I, I promise you, our listener one would strongly argue that South Africa should should not remove the citizenship of the Gupta family because currently we are not sure whether there is citizenship or there isn't. Uh, so that means it's subject to judicial review under Paja. But, but it would be smart not to remove it because because if we don't remove it, that means we, are, we, we keep them as citizens. Then we can prosecute them however we prefer. But if we remove that citizenship, that means that they can take us all the way to the exit trans- tribunal and meaning that they can get their assets back from us. Right, they can remove this preservation order, and it becomes an international issue because now they are no longer citizens of South Africa. So the smarter move to keep the the the, 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 the to to keep their citizenship currently until we are done um, prosecuting them for corruption. Uh, but anyway, um, I think that that is a, a a rather argument that I would like to make in regard to this Gupta issue. While the legal proceedings remain, it was widely reported in December that the Guptas had fallen behind in their scheduled repayments on the loan from EDC that financed um, uh, the plane. So it, it also isn't clear if the Guptas were able to make a payment leading to the release of the aircraft after that. But Phil Taylor of EDC told News 24 at the time that the legal proceedings they have against the Guptas were still proceeding. So there's just so much blunder, scandal, if you, you go all the way to, to KPMG you realise that we, there's just so much that we need to, we, need, we still need to investigate, right? The National Prosecuting Authority has to go all, all out, the AFU, the Asset for Future Unit has to go all out and so we need them as citizens because you cannot arrest someone who's not a citizen because then that person can always, because then you're launching war against uh, their, uh, their nationalised countries or if they have to claim nationality in another country so it's, it's better to keep them here. Those are our legal hotspots for the week. Please stay tuned, uh, tweet us or at VOWFM, hashtag Lawfocus. focus.
1: Rounding up all, all the top all stories, of all the stories of the week, of the week is Legal Hotspots.
0: Hot Law Focus, handing you your rights. Welcome back to Law Focus, your point of legal information. This is the show where we bring you legal arguments straight to your ear. At this critical juncture of constitutional democracy, Law Focus tonight brings the spotlight to class actions through a view on the possible liability of Tiger Brands in the listeriosis outbreak. Listeriosis was discovered at Chris Hani Baragwanath Hospital on Friday, 12th January, when nine children under the age of five years were admitted at the hospital with fibro gastroenteritis. The pediatrician suspected foodborne diseases, uh, including risteriosis, as a possible cause. So the environmental health practitioners were duly informed. And on the same day, they visited the crash, And at that crash they obtained samples of two polony brands, uh, which were manufactured by Enterprise and Rainbow Chicken Limited, and submitted these to the laboratory for testing. And so certain uh, scientific discoveries were made. Listeria monocytogenes were isolated from stool collected from one of the ill children and from both of the polony specimens collected from the crash. These isolates were sent to the NICD Center for Enteric Diseases and they underwent whole genomic se- sequencing and genomic analysis. So they found um, a, a sequencing type 6 uh, in all three isolates on, on Saturday 27th January. From clinical isolates uh, that they, they that, you, that they obtained from the patients, nine sequence types of *Listeria monocytogenes* genes were isolated, and 91% were found in se- sequence type 6. It was then concluded at that time that this outbreak is driven by sequence type 6. Since then, enterprise foods were recalled amid this health scare. The Ministry of Health has concluded that the source of the present outbreak can be confirmed to be that of uh, an an enterprise food production facility in Polokwani. The CEO of Tiger Brands has denied that there is a link between the listeriosis and their facilities. Tonight on Low Focus, uh, we bring the spotlight to the possible legal liability of Tiger Brands in relation to the deaths caused by this listeriosis. To come and speak on behalf of the Department of Health, we have tried to contact Mr. Popo Maja and we have secured an interview with him, but unfortunately he was not able to, to speak to us. The, the health department has actually released a report. You know, the, the report has said to us that one, they've traced the outbreak to a Limpopo facility of enterprise foods, which is Tiger Brent. That's the first thing. That they've been working um, with um, the National Institute of Communicable Diseases in Johannesburg. And after so much research, they were able to make that conclusion. The second step is that the, minister, the Ministry of Health has also made out calls for people to return the Polony brands back to, 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 to Tiger brands. The, th- the third thing that we note from it is that uh, the government is also assisting in, in, compiling it, in, in, in compiling this class action with its findings, uh, working with council to, to compile a last action. Uh, so this also will assist uh, um, those who, who need a report on this regard. Some of the issues that we, Mr. Popomaja was going to cover is the manner in which the Department of Health is supporting the victims um, going forward. How long should people stay clear of enterprise foods? What kind of um, what kind of forward research? What kind of assistance in future can there be in, in order to deal with this bacterial outbreak? Nonetheless, uh, let's take a quick break, but do not forget to tweet us at VOWFM using, using the hashtag LawFocus. <laughs> this is LawFocus. Listening is to LawFocus, focus? connect with VOWFM88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. LawFocus, point, point of information. Will Tiger Brands be held liable and what just compensation will the victims of listeriosis get? That is the question we are probing this evening here on Low Focus, Vow FM 88.1. You are still sitting with me, the guardian of your law, Basil Sharinda. The focal point of this evening is still the possible liability of Tiger Brands in relation to the deaths caused by listeriosis, which was found in some of the products that they declared suitable for consumption. First, let's take a listen to what Tiger Brand CEO Lawrence McDougall had to say on the Tiger Brands products being associated with the cause of the listeriosis outbreak.
2: I cannot guess as to what the link might be. I, all I can confirm is at the moment there is no link. So I can't guess what those links might be in the future. So there are no links to our forest directly to the deaths of those individuals. As to the quality regime, i confirm again. We've shared our quality testing and we will say that the European standard. So. And I think you need to understand that listeria is present in the environment in most places in South Africa. And I think that's been confirmed by many press reports, some of which you have released as well, to inform consumers and educate them as to listeria in the environment. So you know, while we are not saying that we can't get better, we think we can. And we've increased our protocols with advice from the government and the Department of Health. We've increased and we've increased the testing protocols. But were our quality protocols any worse than they were a year ago? No, they were not. No, they were not. We've had no direct link yet through the information that we've received between our products and any of the health risks. If any consumer believes that from eating our products, they have fallen ill, they must just let us know. And when they provide us with the details of that, we are looking to it as we would. So we are not denying that they might have got ill, but whether it was actually linked to our product or not, you know, let's have that conversation. Um, So I can't apologize for something that I'm not Here on yes. If we receive more information and we are directly linked, I will quite openly have a conversation with you. As I said, we are as serious about this as anybody else in South Africa. There's no reason at all, as a father and as a member of the community, that I would not take this seriously. Dysteria in South Africa is a serious thing. And we're gonna work with the government and work with the regulators to eradicate this as best we can, particularly in manufacturing facilities, where we can control it.
0: You've just listened to a clip uh, of Tiger Brand's uh, CEO, Lawrence McDougall, speaking on the listeriosis outbreak. He's saying that, open quote, there's no direct link between our products and the deaths of listeriosis victims. But um, Poor Incorporated attorneys uh, say that 50 families of victims of listeriosis have made contact with them, requesting representation in this class action lawsuit. Um, on the line, we have uh, a lawyer with Richard Spore Incorporated attorneys, uh, Mr. Tami Malusi. Welcome to the show and, and thanks for uh, being with us this evening.
1: No problem. Uh,
0: have there been, um, uh, well, um, I'm speaking about representation. How many families have contacted Richard Spoor, uh, Incorporated attorneys for representation?
1: people that actually approached us um seeking for assistance in this case um and subsequent to that there's obviously been a lot of attention around this case so there's been quite a lot of people that have actually approached us subsequent to their initial people um are seeking for assistance so there's been quite a number of people that have approached us
0: i mean the ceo of tiger Brands has released a statement that there is no link between their products and the listeriosis deaths what are your comments on that
1: so we've done quite a lot of class actions, which is what, um, which is how we are doing this case as well. So effectively what that means is we seek to represent everyone that has been affected by, by, by the mysterious, provided that the court allows us to do that. Um, the way we have structured it financially before is that um, we would try to seek our cost against the defendant, in this case, Tiger Brent. Um That's how any other court case goes. Um, and if we are unsuccessful, uh, what we have done, obviously we have uh, made a what we call the contingency fee arrangement with, uh, with the victims. So our initial, uh, so what we go for first is for Tiger Banks to pay our costs if we do are successful. Failing which, we then have a contingency fee arrangement wherein uh, we'll charge a certain percentage as prescribed by the law. Um, but that is only going to be chargeable to the client if we win for them. So if we don't win, we don't get anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how we're structuring it. So the first call is that we try to seek to recover our costs against Tiger Brands. But the second point is that if we fail to recover our costs from Tiger Brands and we win something for the clients, we'll recover a certain percentage of those winnings uh, in terms of the law.
3: Okay. And then with yeah. um, the Tiger Brand CEO response and the fact that he, they think that there's no link between their products and, and the death, um, does that not mm-hmm. concern
2: you guys?
1: Not, not really. Um, so this is a civil case, right? So uh, this is different from a criminal case. So in a criminal case, you have to prove a case beyond reasonable doubt, right? So you have to be 100% certain that you can make the link. The civil case, in that in, on the other hand, you have to prove it a balance of probability. So you need to prove it 50% plus one. In this case, what has happened is that there's a specific strain of hysteria that was found in 90% of the victims that are tested with Um The same strain was found in the Pulukwane um, operations of tiger brains. So you can link that specific strain to the victims, and you get that connection. So it's like saying, I found your fingerprints in the crime scene, it's exactly the same analogy. So we found the fingerprints of the victims the same fingerprint was found um, in the Pulukwana operation with Tiger Brands. Bearing in mind that you don't have to make that link beyond reasonable doubt, You only need to prove it in the balance of probability. And the fact that we've got 90% of the tested victims with the same strain means that's beyond uh, balance of probability.
0: Do you have enough support from the Department of Health or the World Health Organization or any other entity to take on the Tiger Brands?
1: Yeah, so we're working with a, uni- a firm that is based in the United States. They're called Mala They're advising us in a consultancy basis. They are the leading lawyers in foodborne uh, illness litigation. So this is the type of work that they do, and there's no one else that's better in the world than that. So we have partnered up with them. Um, so they're going to be advising us and assisting us in as this case. There's also a couple of other social partners that have, um, that have been assisting us. Um, as well, so we have quite a, I'm uh, very confident that we've put together a very uh, credible team to, 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 to put this case forward.
0: From your experience, how long do you predict this lawsuit will take?
1: Yeah, um, they can't check a while because you must remember, so essentially what we're saying here is that we try to represent everyone. So the requirements are a lot more tougher than uh, normal court cases. But our approach here and our, our, our objective is actually not to try. We want to get a settlement out of Tiger Brands. We feel like um, it is not in anyone's interest, especially the victims, for this case to drag along and follow the normal court processes. So we believe that if Tiger Brands can come forward and try to settle, um, that's the route that it will take. And we're hoping that through um, initiating the court proceedings, um, they would see that as a sign of how serious we are and how strong the case that we have against them and we're hoping that will trigger some sort of settlement um, on the end.
0: Studies have shown that class actions within South, Afri- South Africa have proved challenging as the constitution does not provide any guidelines regulating class actions. What challenges do you foresee with this lawsuit? Yeah,
1: so there isn't. So normally the court would set down uh, rules of procedure around how you bring a certain action, you know, and with class actions, it's, it's a very it's it's an unknown phenomenon in the South African legal space, you know um, it's it's not in America and in Europe, but not so much in South Africa um, so the first challenge is that it's not it's relatively unclear what processes you must follow and what you need to elect to prove a class action. With that said, um, my firm recently brought a the, the, the class action in 2016 where uh, we represented uh, gold miners uh, that contracted what we call from working in the gold mines. Um, that was the biggest class action in South Africa, um, and we got that certified, certified successfully. So and since then, there's been some clarity around class actions. That's why we believe that no one is best position to um, bring this than us, because we've done it before and we've done it successfully. So there is some guidance based on the work that we've done um, on class actions, but it's still a relatively unclear area
0: are you surprised that all by tiger brains not admitting liability
1: yeah i mean besides them having denied the link which is not surprising uh for various reasons you know if they had net liability chances are they would not be able to claim from insurance because you know when 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 um when something like this happens um they'll normally have insurance to cover it and normally in insurance contracts you'd say the insurance will provide that if you do admit liability you're not gonna claim So I'm not surprised that they have not um, admitted liability. With that said though, they haven't said much in the public space around their confidence. All they said is firstly you're gonna admit liability and secondly we're gonna go on and do our own research and find out if the listeria that was found in, in, in the ninety percent victims is the same listeria that was found in in the Puluquan operation.
0: If given the opportunity, what would you say to the victims?
1: I think a lot of people have been there's been a lot of people wondering what to do right and whether or not if we're pursuing this class action they need to come forward and join us right for class action you don't have to as a victim um come forward and 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 join the law that is being a class action um there's a fairly comprehensive process that is going to be driven by the courts uh, at a much later stage around notifying every victim of leperiosis and whether or not they want to step out, if, if they do want to be part of the class action or not. So there isn't any pressure on people to come forward to us and register as clients. Uh, with that said, that doesn't mean if they don't come and register as clients, they're going to be left out of the process. Um, there will be, as I say, should we be successful in proving the case, um, then the court is going to start telling people, um that they should come forward right but should people want to contact us they can do so so we they can contact us at info at which is 4. the number is 011 482 6081 that's 011 482 6081
0: is there an amount you foresee for your clients for compensation
1: um that's another issue with with, with the class action and the type of clients that we have right so the degree of damage suffered by the clients varies uh, from client to client, right? Um, for instance, there's people that uh, contracted silicosis and have recovered fully, um, mm-hmm. so therefore their damages would not be as much. But there's also children that uh, contract, con- contracted uh, silicosis through the placenta when they were um, when their mothers were pregnant. Those ones are more likely to have suffered higher damages because what we've noticed, and with a lot of the clients that we've, that we've received, is that most of those children uh, have brain um, problems, have brain damages, and obviously that will mean that there's going to be medical expenses going into the future. You know, um, they might need medical care for the rest of their life. So, those clients, compared to someone that merely got psychosis that was sick for a day or two and recovered um, there's going to be different damages. So it's still very difficult to quantify right now because we don't know, I mean, we know there's about a thousand people that have silicosis that uh, were positively identified to have silicosis, but we don't know the difference in those people and that how many of those people uh, are the incense and how many of those people are people that just got silicosis and fully recovered. So we need to still determine that and that will uh, indicate the extent of the damage people that pass away, there's dependents that they had um, that have lost support and all sorts of other things so yes, we're also recovering we, we everyone.
0: Um, thank you for your contribution this evening um, Mr. Tamir Malusi.
1: No problem, thank you so much for having me. Listening, listening
0: to Law Focus connect with VALFAM 88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law, Law Focus on Barfam. Barfam 88.1 Point
1: of Information
0: Welcome back to Law Focus, your point of legal information. My name is Basil Shurinder, Um and on the line we have Dr. Theo Broderick, uh, who is a manager and senior lecturer at the University of Stellenbosch. Um, he's the manager of the Law Clinic. Welcome, Dr. Theo. Thank you very much. Um, uh, doctor, I'd like to know from you, um, how can this be litigated? Um, oh, they all
1: a few options yeah. like potential litigants disposal. Uh, in my view, the preferable option would be to institute a class action. Um, and the class action would then be either for the recovery of damages related to personal injuries sustained by the users or the consumers of the contaminated product, yeah. or the consumer class action. Uh, where the class action relates to recovering damages related to uh, the losses incurred as a result of purchasing a product that is defective. For example, I paid for a piece of baloney, I now want my money back. Yes. So those are the two primary options at um, a potential litigants disposal. There has been a class action instituted during the course of last week um, by an attorney uh, South African attorney's firm. There's also a class action being instituted, I understand during the course of this week by Richard Spure, mm. uh in conjunction with a, a, a international law firm I think who bring to bring to the table uh, their resources to assist in the conduct of the litigation.
0: I mean, uh, you mentioned the class actions. I mean, we, this is not our first case of class actions. I mean, if, mm. if if we remember, the silicosis case also went through the same process of class action. Uh, what would you yes. say? What would you say is the overall overview of class actions in South Africa? Um,
1: the class mechanism, as you correctly point out, it's been present in the South African legal system for the past twenty odd years. It was first introduced in 1994 in our interim constitution, that new. But only now for the first time is it actually being utilized to its potential. So you've correctly pointed out to the silicosis um, litigation where the same individual referred to short while ago, Richard Spur, was also the tennis firm representing the miners. Yeah, yeah. it, it's not a new mechanism, but now for the first time it's being utilized. And it's been utilized to serve um, a very important purpose. And the purpose is primarily to provide access to justice to individuals who would not have otherwise been in a position to litigate their claims. So the mechanism allows you to combine a large number of claims into a single lawsuit where representative litigates on behalf of a class who have common issues of fact or law mm. in respect of which you are litigating. So access to justice, it enables those claims to be brought together and then for you to litigate in respect of those claims. But it also serves two additional purposes. judicial economy, it doesn't make sense to force a hundred list of sentence. victims uh, it could potentially increase to a thousand, to litigate individually, to incur uh, costs yeah. individually to pursue their claims and for the, cost, for the courts to be burdened by those individual claims. Yeah. From a resource perspective, that's not it's not the best way to deal with it. The class action cuts through those complexities. Um, and then finally, behavior modification. So what we want to do in the Listeria's example, Everybody is saying that Tiger Brands and co need to be held accountable for inappropriate conduct. Mm -hmm. And the class action is a mechanism through which we can go to court and say, well, Tiger Brands, it's your opportunity to now come to court and to offer an explanation. And if it's not sufficient, then you will be held accountable. And in so doing, it deters future wrongdoing.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've you've highlighted a very important aspect uh, there for our listeners uh, of judicial economy and and resources uh, that that individuals well class actions help that individuals do not have to litigate individually or do not have to litigate on their own, and I think that is a very important aspect of the entire conversation because. I mean, what would you say are the key challenges with carrying out uh, these class-action lawsuits in South Africa, having noted that there there needs to be commonality in law and fact? Wouldn't you say that there is potential for for, for difficulty there? Yes.
1: uh, The difficulty, generally, practically speaking, um, it's expensive to litigate a class-action. It might be less expensive than doing it individually, but it might still be very expensive, and in South Africa, we don't really have third-party funders, so we don't really have firms who are in a position to litigate on a contingency basis, so to bring a class action, you need a lot of money to coordinate it, and you need to satisfy the court that you're not going to halfway through the litigation stop, because you don't have sufficient funds or sufficient resources to, to see it through. So that's an important challenge, and one that Richards poor will seek to overcome by getting the assistance of a foreign firm. But that's on a practical level. On a more substantive, a more legal, uh, legally substantive level, you have to overcome, for example, in the example, um, uh, litigation, you have to show causation. You have yeah. to show that consumption of that product caused me to feel ill and it resulted in certain losses or damages that are now entitled to recoup. It sounds straightforward, but how do you prove that you purchased the product, the specific product that's now subject to the dispute? You purchased it. It's as a result of that consumption that you got sick. What about the pre existing illness, for example? Yes, you were a yes. smoker. You already had certain symptoms. How do you how do you establish that? And medical evidence.
0: But let me interject there. It is bro. probably the biggest challenge here. Prof, you need me, to let me interject. Have proper medical evidence. Professor, let me interject there on this issue of causation. Um, can you please educate us on what the Nkala judgment, the silicosis judgment, said uh, with regard to? Um, it probably being caused by other forms of situations. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean,
1: so my view on Moyapedo, the Deputy Judge President Moyapelo's approach in the Incola judgment, I've questioned it. I've said his rationale is, in my view, subject to dispute but the outcome, his finding that the clause actually is suitable, is the correct one. What Moyapelo said in, in the silicosis and the Nkala judgment, he said that if there are common issues of fact or law, so exposure to silicosis is a sufficient commonality to enable you to bring a class action. You don't really need anything more. Then you can use the class action as a vehicle to litigate your claims in the form of a class action. Yeah. I've said, I don't think that's the test. I don't think the test is simply commonality. What about a class action where you've got 18 individuals and it might be preferable to join them to the litigation as opposed to bringing class action? Nevertheless, the test that our courts have applied is whether it's in the interests of justice to permit a class action being instituted. So are we going to... Let causation as a first board of course, when we consider certification of the class action, are we going to let the issue of difficulties relating to causation make us refuse to certify the class action very unlikely? What the courts will do is they will bifurcate it. And a lot of the color judgment dealt with this issue, bifurcation of proceedings, which basically means splitting the proceedings in two. Yeah. You've got one proceeding dealing with the issue of liability, and then another proceeding dealing with the issue of causation and quantification of damages. Damages, yes. Which is where the problem comes in because different people at different levels of exposure, at different pre existing illnesses, at different amounts of damages. So you had to consider those individual circumstances uh, individually. Um, so and that's what, what Moyapello said and I agree with Moyapello. There it's necessary to split the proceedings in two, which is I suspect our courts will follow a similar approach with the Lestriosis litigation, to split the proceedings in two, to consider the issue of liability. Liability first, and then the issue of causation and the quantification of damages separately.
0: Yes, on that, uh, Sir, so what would be your learned view on 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 how this listeriosis compensation should be dealt with? Because I think it's a very difficult issue.
1: You are absolutely right. It's a it's a very very complex issue, and internationally. Um, so our class-action mechanism has borrowed from the American class-action model, it's borrowed from the Canadian class-action model, specifically the model in Ontario. And and they've been through this process, so they know what the difficulties are. And mm-hmm. what we're dealing with here is a dispersed mass thought. In South African terms, it basically means an accident arising from a single cause but that has dispersed results. Some people have died as a result of the Listeria's consumption. Other people have suffered minor injuries. And that in itself is a challenge. So um, we can borrow from those jurisdictions and apply it to South in context. Um, And if it's not a personal injury class action, it's a lot easier to deal with this situation. They, in the foreign jurisdictions, what they've done is they've said you can do a class-wide calculation of damages. Oh, for okay. example, let's take a, a few individuals or let's, let's work out an average amount for the entire class through math- mathematical calculations. Yes. That's one way of doing it. They don't want to do it in the context of a personal injury class action. Okay. And that's why, in America, they don't use the class action anymore in the context of asbestos-related litigation, for example, uh, which is similar to the Listeria's incident. And I say that it's not the preferable vehicle to quantify damages of individual class members. So, and, and our courts have not yet had to deal with this problem because in, in Kala, uh the matter is being settled. Out of court, yes. So, our court has not yet had to, had to deal with the issue of how do they quantify individual damages, damages of individual class members in a personal injury class action. Because the injuries are very personal to that individual, so you have to give that individual the opportunity to quantify his damages. You can obviously think for yourself that where a class member has passed away, so the family is litigating behalf of, of that individual. Mm. And they assume for loss of income. Mm. Compared to another class member who got sick as a result of the consumption of the product, but only has a medical bill of 1,500, right? We're talking about millions compared to thousands. So you have to afford them an opportunity to quantify it individually. And I, I don't think there's, in my view, to answer your question, I don't think there's much of an option other than to create subclasses where the subclasses contain a number of individuals in the with same region or same type of, of, of problems, so all the deceased members all their family members will be in one class, for example. Yeah. All the members who sustain sustained injuries and who have medical evidence proving damages in the amount up to 10,000 grand will be in one class. That's one way of dealing with it. Uh, but but it's going to be difficult, um, and it's going to be very interesting to see how our courts deal with this issue, uh, the quantification of damages. I should probably just add that in those jurisdictions that I've referred to, um, the settlement rate of the certification of a class action is approximately 90%, nine zero. So uh, during certification, the court won't go into in detail into the merits of the case. Yeah. So you don't need to prove quantum of damages at that stage. Yeah, yeah. If a court certifies it, chances are 90% that you will settle your matter.
0: Yeah, because yeah, once it's certified, then you're left to do is as, as go in and, and deal with it on the ground level. Uh, thank you. That was Theo who obtained his Legum uh, Doctor degree in the field of class actions with the title of his dissertation being Developing a Structure for the Adjudication of Class Actions in South Africa. And he has told us tonight tonight the challenges of a class action in South Africa, including the fact that when you're dealing with personal injury, it becomes difficult to quantify compensation injuries. Uh, Dr. Theo bruderick, thank you for your contribution this evening. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Law Focus. Point, point of information. Welcome back. Uh, uh, right after our, after our interview with Dr. Theo Broderick, we have uh, Professor Salim Najavani uh, from the University of the West Rand, and he's one of the research, um, research uh, researchers at the university. He's also an advocate of the bar, and he's handled class actions um, um, broadly. Welcome, Professor Salim.
3: Thank you very much. Good to be here. Greetings to your listeners.
0: Yeah. uh, I think, I I mean, tonight we are talking class actions and and, and so forth. And we want to hear from you. Looking at the history of class action lawsuits in South Africa, um, what would you say currently, where are we legally? Well, class actions, I think,
3: are going to be an increasingly expanding area of South African legal practice. What we don't see yet in South Africa is the use of class action in in uh, all of the range of areas that you may see in other jurisdictions, you know, Australia or uh, the United States, particularly, where you see um, wide use of this mechanism. But really, since this line of uh, bread cases at the Constitutional Court, you, know, you see the development of a, of a court Driven legal framework for dealing with class actions. Um, it, it begins with this stage called certification, where the plaintiff, the, the attorney of the plaintiff, has to show the court why a class action should be permitted to proceed. Who are in the classes, and to show that they have a tribal issue. Do they have a case? Is there something that a judge can rule on here? Mm. You know, and it's only once that cl- those that class or those classes of plaintiffs. Have been certified, can then the class action proceed and what's important to remember about that, I think is that we're talking about a class of people we're not talking about a group of people. The difference there mm.
1: you know
3: is that you're not you're not saying uh, a list of named people who all act through one representative plaintiff, but you're saying anyone who meets the following objectively determinable criteria they're going to be a part of this class
0: yeah.
3: You know, and, and, and that has advantages and disadvantages.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, wh- what are the factors to consider whenever courts have to certify class actions?
3: You know, they they look at whether, you know, the definition of the class and is the class objectively verifiable? For example, would you, would you just be able to say that you're in the class based on your own subjective preferences or is there some basis on which an objective determination can be made? They'll be looking at... Which issues need to be settled among this entire class mm. as, you know, in relation to the defendant? Are there common issues? How many common issues? You, you know, you can, it's one of those, those popular misconceptions that you can only launch a class action when the entire action between all the plaintiffs and the defendant is, is going to be dealt with in that class action. That's not the case. It's possible in a class action to settle, to to, to, sorry, to to divide the merits of the action, and then the 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 precise damages. And when you think about that, that makes sense. Mm. It may be that each and every plaintiff in the class, you know, the their claim against the defendant may depend on settling some very clear and common legal issues, say, delictual liability. Mm. But on the other hand, the precise damages that each plaintiff suffered. Well, that's something that, that you can't really argue as a class, because, of course, one plaintiff has a particular level of income. Another plaintiff may have many more dependents. A third plaintiff may have no dependents. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and they have individual factors that determine the extent of the damages they suffered. But that doesn't mean you can't proceed with a class action on an issue of liability, or even an issue uh, comparatively less significant than liability, as long as it affects the relation between the entire class and the defendant. So those are some of the factors. I mean, the court also looks at, you know, the the, the benefits of the class action, and it's also important to think, you know, you the perception is out there that it's not good for a defendant to face a class action, you know, because suddenly it means. You know, you're, you're dealing with, with uh, uh, claims for an astronomical amount of money, um, and it's going to be much more harder to defend yourself against that. But there are, in fact, defendants who prefer to be sued by class action.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And, I mean, the reason for that is that once the action is, um, is, 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 uh, reaches a judgment, then it means it's a judgment that is binding on every member of the class. whether or not they participated in the action itself. Mm. And so that can bring a lot more certainty, finality for a defendant. It can help them understand exactly what am I exposed to here? What kind of liability am I being exposed to? Because they understand that their liability is being determined in reference to the entire class. So there won't be suddenly plaintiffs emerging uh, out of the woodwork uh, much later on once the action has reached judgment.
0: What does the Nkala judgment teach us with regards to, to, to damages and, and the, the challenges of it being subjective, especially in personally injury claims?
3: You know, it, it becomes difficult to, to quantify, you know, but then in the end, quantification in a class action involves, quantification of individual damages involves the same kind of expert evidence that you would expect for an individual plaintiff to quantify his or her damages. Um, and that's really a fundamental principle of law. The plaintiff must prove the quantum, the amount of the damages that he or she has suffered. And, and, and uh, I, I think what you're saying, though, is, is particularly significant in light of the decision we saw today uh, of, of retired Deputy Chief Justice Moseneke in the Esidumeni arbitration. Yeah. Because there, you know, a, a blanket sum was awarded as constitutional damages and so i think that um you know the role of constitutional damages in class actions is an is an area to watch it's going to be interesting to see
0: i, I we need to get deeper into it the the judgment that which is provided by ngala judgment doesn't seem to, or or rather has people have argued that it doesn't seem to be in line with the judgment that was released in in the mukadam judgment with regards to the issue of damages and causation what would be your comment in that regard? I think, yeah. I mean, I look at it. I mean, it is, it is, it
3: is puzzling simply because there's no the, the fundamental principles of liability don't change because of the nature of the action as a class action. Yeah. In other words, the, the plaintiff still bears the same burden. Otherwise, you'll end up with a particular kind of delictual liability for a class action, and then a, 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 a more stringent form of liability applicable to uh, an ordinary action. And and there's simply no justification for drawing that kind of distinction. The the other thing to bear in mind, though, of course, is that uh, for certain kinds of liability, there may be a statute in place that relaxes some of the requirements of liability. So, you know, where a particular statutory regime applies and regulates liability, for example, in the consumer... uh, in the consumer context, mm. you, know, you, you, may, you may find that the judgment appears to relax the, the requirements of Aquilian liability, but it's doing it because there's a statute that permits it to do it. I really don't see any principled basis to be able to relax the elements of liability simply because you say now we're dealing with a class action, so we have some practical difficulties, so we must change the law. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, 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 that's just judicial uh, lawmaking.
0: Yeah, but but I mean to stretch it even further, I think the rationale of Mojapelo DJP there was that was that purely because this was a procedural, um, it was a procedural uh, proceeding. There was there wasn't a need to look into the technicalities of the law in terms of merit, but to rather focus on whether this can be certified and whether there is an issue of commonality. Because he focused more on commonality. Yes. No,
3: I was, sorry, I understand now. You're referring to the certification phase. Yeah. But in the certification phase, anyway, the the standard the plaintiff must meet is not to show the liability of the defendant, yeah. but simply to show that that as a class uh, or the representative plaintiff has a triable issue Yeah. Okay. Uh, so they, there's no need for a, 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 a determinative judgment on all the elements of liability. That's not what the test of tribal issue means.
0: Okay. Now no, that makes sense. Professor Salim Nakhshavani, thank you for your interview this uh, this evening and, and I mean it's very important to let our listeners know that you're actually one of the best litigators in the country. Thank you for your contribution.
3: Well, that's, that's far too generous of you, but thank
1: you for your time. <laughs> thank you. Listening to Law Focus, connect with LawFam88.1 on
0: Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Yeah, welcome back, Law Focus listener. You're still sitting here with Basil Shirenda. I mean, we, we have we have had countless conversations tonight, and I think the primary conversation at the end of the day is that justice must be done, or at least justice must be seen to be done, according to Kang Musenek's words. Um, in one of the mo- most pre- prestigious judgments of Schubert uh, and Blue Moonlight. Now, coming back to the issue of listeriosis, it is important to note that, firstly, the Department of Health or the Health Ministry has released a report to show us where this outbreak stems from. It stems from Tiger Brands and Enterprise Food in the Pulukwane facility. So we know the cause, we know the source. And and so the next step is to determine how did it cause the the particular deaths of listeriosis. So all that needs to be proven in court is that here's a litigant. The litigant has bought poloni from Enterprise Food and Tiger Brands, has, has consumed this poloni which possessed listeriosis in it, and these are the results, right? So if that can be proven, that would be sufficient. There's no need to look at external factors of, but it could have been someone else. It, it, It could have been there. It could have been there. No, that's irrelevant. What is important is to show that in consuming this particular product, it endangered the life of this particular patient and as a result caused their death. And therefore, there's a need for compensation for their loss of life. And, and compensation is a very difficult issue as, as Theo Broderick was talking about um, personal injury claims. And I think that is a shortcoming of the law in general when, whenever we deal with delict issues um, that compensation is never enough, right? It can never be enough. I mean, look at my, Michael, for example, when Michael died in that pit, pit, uh, pit toilet, no matter how much damages you can put on it, it can never be the same as, as bringing the child back. And that's not what the law is trying to do. What the law is trying to do is trying to say, okay, fine, we, we, we notice the fault. We notice the negligence. We notice the liability. And to this extent, we are going to provide you with minimum compensation. But imagine somebody who has to deal with that for the rest of their lives. Imagine somebody who has lost a family member purely because of this listeriosis. There can never be enough damages. The same thing with the life is a demanding issue. You know, whenever you're dealing with personal injury claims, loss of support, loss of earnings, as I, was, as, as I was saying earlier, you can never provide enough compensation. So in this particular case, it is very, it is quite premature, I submit, of the CEO of Tiger Brands to, to come out quite strongly to say that there's, there's no link between them and, and the cause of the deaths, especially after the report that has been released by the minister, by, by the Minister of Health. And that really shows that we are about we are about to see a, a tug of war there. Um, we are about to see staunch litigation. Um, and although it's always the argument that once the the class is certified, um, there's no there's no more argument. Then it's just a matter of of, of 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 damages. I mean, too much can be said. Too much still needs to be done. Um, today we have looked at liability. I've I've made my submissions. I've made my arguments. I want to hear yours. So please tweet us at VOWFM, hashtag LawFocus. That's all we have for this week on Law Focus. the show where we try our our best to provide uh, social justice by by giving you your legal rights. Thank you for joining us. Find us on social media. Our podcast will be on on journalism.co.za shortly. And join us again next week, please. From my producer, Abulali Diakopu, and from me, uh Bezo Shirinda, it's Law, it's serious. Good evening. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with Val Fam 88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Let's listen. listen to the Law Focus podcast on www.journalism.co.za